Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Uh, this one is called the Maha Shanyata Sutta, which means the greater discourse on emptiness. The class we just taught uh, last Saturday was on the Kula Shanyata, the lesser discourse, and they're related in that way. Um, but some of the terms you're going to be hearing are for the first time, um, and you're, you're, it, it might seem very confusing to you. Don't let that bother you. Everybody that is listening right now never heard this sutta until they heard this sutta. Nobody that's here right now never heard of the Dhamma until they came to, to these classes. So we all began where you are. Um, so it's enough just to be listening, um, be willing to understand it and begin your practice. Um, and if you start from that point, and we can talk tomorrow a little bit more about establishing and continuing your practice. But if you start here, start right where you are and just follow along with us, you're going to reap all the benefits that we have. So um, just a little bit of the introduction here that I know you all read. Uh, in describing Ananda, the meaning of emptiness that is in accord with reality and is undistorted and pure, the Buddha describes it as free of self-referential views, in, in his words, in what is seen, much like he said to Bahia. In what is seen, there is only the seen. In what is heard, there is only the heard. In what is cognized, there is only what is cognized. So that means that we don't color any of our experiences by our own self-referential views. And what is seen is just, this is what I'm seeing. This is what's in front of me. And whatever I hear, it's just what I happen to be hearing. There's nothing personal about it. And there's nothing personal, this is most important, there's nothing personal about our thoughts. And that's the most difficult thing. We become so enamored with our thoughts because we use our thoughts to create a fabricated self in the world. It's all up in our heads though, it truly is. The way we think about ourselves in relation to the world is all in our heads. And until we come to the Dhamma, none of it is actually based in the reality of this present moment. It's always colored by the past being dragged into the future and projecting, uh, being dragged into the present and projecting onto the future. And so we miss this present moment. So all of the Buddha's Dhamma, and there's even reference to it in the Sutta, is about being present for this moment in our life. Nothing more. The Mahashanyata Sutta, the greater discourse on emptiness. The Buddha was in Kapalavatu at Banyan Park. Returning from his alms round, he noticed many resting places prepared at Kalakamaka, the Sakin's dwelling, and wondered if there were many monks living there. Uh, the Sakins were just part of the, the Buddha's clan, so um, they were all cousins at, at, and interrelated in that way. Ananda and many other monks were at the dwelling of Gata making robes. That evening, the Buddha went to Gata's dwelling. He asked Ananda about the resting places that Kalakamaka's, at Kalakamaka's dwelling, and if there were many monks living there. He was concerned about this burgeoning community of now um, getting distracted from their Dhamma practice because of their community and their socialization. Ananda replied, yes, teacher, many monks are in attendance there and we are making robes for them. The Buddha was concerned about the social aspects of living in, a, in as close a community. He remarked to, to Ananda that 
a Dharma practitioner does not flourish if they delight in company, is committed to delight in company. So we're not talking about being antisocial, but what we are talking about is creating an identity or in modern terms, a tribal view of who I am in relation to the world based on who I'm associating with. And in many, many suttas, this is addressed directly that way, is to be to form our associations wisely, to choose them wisely, and just don't use them to, because they, um, they provide a good echo chamber for our own beliefs, which those things that are keeping us distracted and, and stuck in self-referential views. And whenever we're, a, when, whenever we're describing ourselves as part of a tribe, no matter how um, altruistic that tribe might be, we've literally lost our own sovereignty. We've literally lost our minds because we're not part of a tribe. We might be part of a group of people of like-mindedness, but as soon as we create an identity, no matter what it is, it could even be with a, with a, um, it could be even be with a sports team. So every 16, every Sunday, people that are, that are enamored with 16 teams are getting distracted and disappointed. It's kind of a silly reference, but we do that in all aspects of our lives. We do it with people that have practiced our own religion, our own, our own Dhamma practice, our own politics, our own um, social clubs. And we take a view that this is, I'm right, and everybody else is just trying to catch up. Of course, nobody's right and nobody's wrong, except as it's framed by the Eightfold Path, beginning with right view and understanding the five clinging aggregates. The Buddha continues. It is indeed impossible when a Dhamma practitioner delights in company, eye making, and is committed to company, who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in that group simply because of their own self-reference, then they will achieve, they will not achieve the pure pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, of unbinding, and release, and of self-awakening. It's impossible, the Buddha says. Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, withdrawn from company and withdrawn from groups and achievements and achieves the pure pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, of unbinding, of release, and of self-awakening. Now, the Buddha is not saying that we should never associate it with anybody else. In fact, as we develop the Dhamma, our, or our encounters with people become much more meaningful because we're not clinging to that association, to that friendship, to that relationship, to that ideology. We're just present because we choose to be present. And that changes every moment of our life. Ananda, it is indeed impossible for a Dharma practitioner who delights in company and is committed to delighting in company, who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in being part of a group, is able to enter and remain in the release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable or in the more refined release from self-referential view, referential views that is not temporary and is beyond fabrication. That's the awakened state. So the Buddha is not saying don't be part of a group. He's saying don't be enamored with part of a, being part of a group. Don't take delight in it. It's simply something that you're doing. And as soon as we start taking a delight in being part of a group, there's at least a, um, a subtle view that other groups aren't quite as good as the one we're part of. Why do we think that way? Because we're associated with it, because we've created a view. And because that view is rooted in a misunderstanding of Four Noble Truths, it's rooted in a fabrication, itself rooted in a, in a wrong perception that we're now compelled to maintain that ideology, excuse me. 
And so we might find ourselves getting frustrated and even angry and even rageful over people that seem like they're attracting, attacking our tribe. But why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we take those things personal? Because we don't know any better. We think this is how we're supposed to live in the world. We're supposed to have these clinging relationships with some groups and adverse relationships with other groups. I wouldn't be a part of them because they're Democrats. I wouldn't be a part of them. I won't listen to them because they're Republican. Or anything else. Might be short people or tall people. Somebody just came out a few days ago. I heard this, that um, short people are much more environmentally friendly. The implication is that people that are taller than me aren't really friendly to the environment. And probably, if they're not friendly to the environment, they probably shouldn't live because you're destroying the environment by being five foot ten. And aren't I something special because I'm so lucky to be five foot ten? Well, I'm shrinking, probably down to five, six now. It's ridiculous to think that way, isn't it? And it's also hurtful, isn't it? What if I'm one of those short people that buys into it? That's coloring every relationship I have with everybody who's older than I am. And I might be one of those people that think it's good to take up a cause. And based on what I just heard an expert say, I'm going to take up the cause of smallness. And I'm going to invite all kinds of people to, to have great parades with nobody on over five foot five, and we're gonna save the environment. It's nonsense, isn't it? But so is every other thought that is associated with a ridiculous idea, or that says that that group or that person is bad, because it's always from taking it personal. Anytime I take anything in the world personally, I've lost my mind. Not in a, in a, um, in a therapeutic sense, although it often ends up there, but in a practical sense, because of my delight in the company that I associate with, I'm now discounting almost everybody else in the world. Ron, you were going to say something. Uh, the solution would be to make those taller people just a little bit shorter. Yes. Well, Ron, you didn't see that. Ron said you make them shorter, and how do you do it? Off with their heads. But it's not such a silly thing. We've been cutting people's heads off for all kinds of reasons, literally. Mm -hmm because they didn't agree with whoever was in charge or whatever this group was. It started as when we first started emerging from caves. We didn't like people that were different than us, and they probably did get upset with people that are stronger than them because they were killing the people that were smaller. So we're finally getting our revenge. Again, we're, we're giggling, but it, 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 is just this, this, it is just this ridiculous to take any kind of self-referential view because it cannot be sustained. If you look at any anything in that way, in a practical way, it it cannot be resolved in reality. Continue. Ananda, it is indeed impossible for a Dharma practitioner who delights in company and is committed to delighting in company, right? That's another, that's a deeper level of committing of delighting in company. I'm now committed to delighting in company. That becomes my the whole reason for my living. And that becomes very, very insular, and it can become very damaging just to a human mind to think that way, and a lot of people do. Who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in being part of a group is able to enter and remain in their release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable, or even in the more refined release from self-referential views that is not temporary and is beyond fabrication. So if you're the type that is clinging to groups through your ideology or your religiosity, 
It doesn't mean that you shouldn't hold a certain view of the world, but if it's supported by your association with others, you're in trouble because you're, you, you have to isolate others and you form a bubble around the way you live in the world. And even if it's a righteous bubble, it then becomes a self-righteous bubble and that's only hurtful. Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, withdrawn from company and withdrawn from, group, from groups to enter and remain in the release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable as our practice continues, or in the more refined release from self-referential views that is not temporary and is beyond fabrication, describing the quality of an awakened human being, fully mature human being. Then the Buddha says, I do not see even a single being who would not experience confusion, delusion, and suffering from being passionate and taking delight in company and groups. So this isn't a modern phenomenon of humanity. It was present and strong 2,600 years ago and all the years before that. We've always done this, whether it's through nationality or any other self-referential views. It's always a view, and it's always a view that sustains me in a self-referential way, isn't it? I typically join groups because I think it makes me better than you. I've now isolated myself. And again, it's a ridiculous thought, isn't it? And it's ridiculous because that's a quality of mind that is rooted in ignorance or delusion. Ananda, there is a pleasant abiding discovered by the Tathagata. The Tathagata, the Buddha is referring to himself or any other eventually awakened being. A pleasant abiding, abiding discovered by the Tathagata, not attending to any self-referential views, who enters and remains in an internal quality that is empty of any self-referential views and internal emptiness. That's the, again, as we looked at last week, that's the Buddhist teaching on emptiness, to be empty of any self-referential views, to be empty of ignorance. It doesn't mean we aspire to a, some kind of magical state of nothingness or emptiness that I'll, I'll dwell in forever and ever for all eternity. What good is that? Who would want that? Who would want that as a, as a, um, a resolution or a goal of their Dhamma practice? Yet, because I associated with groups and I delighted in groups and I was committed to delighting in the groups that I did, I practice that way. For many, many years, the resolution of my Dhamma practice was emptiness or nothingness. Even though I, I couldn't understand it, it didn't make sense to me, and I probably really didn't want it. But because I was so delighted in whatever group it was, and it was quite a few different groups over the years, I just went along with it. Even spending hours and hours in, uh, in sashins, in the 14-hour meditation sessions, thinking this is ridiculous. What am I doing this for? And I'd often talk to people after the end of these seven and 10 days, you weren't, you didn't talk during it. And almost to a person, they said, the great relief is that it's over. And that's how it was for me. I didn't gain anything out of it, but yet I did it because of my delightful associations and they were all delightful. And so that's how I understood this lesson when I finally came across. And it was one of the things that kept me going in a direction that led nowhere, only to more confusion. The Buddha continues, while abiding in this pleasant abiding, he is visited by others. His mind, while established in seclusion, he's talking about himself now, 
And having abandoned the fermentations that develop from clinging to company and groups, he converses with others and only when necessary and skillful, and then they take their leave. They don't have to live together, pile together on top of each other. They exchange whatever there is to exchange. They address whatever there is to address. Then we take our leave, much like we do here, right? We come together in a remarkable way. And now we've been doing it for over 10 years in a remarkable way. We come together in the Dhamma and we share the Dhamma personally. And then we go and we take our leave, don't we? And we're not clinging the Dhamma to each other and with each other throughout between classes or whatever. We practice the Dhamma in accordance with the Dharma. And we don't we become wise at not associating our pure Dharma practice with something else, meaning by introducing other practices, etc. We talk a lot about that. And we're we're very um, circumspect about how we practice our Dhamma. We practice it in accordance with the Dhamma and not some other way because somebody we might associate with does something a little differently. Also, prepare you to go into different situations, different groups, if you're doing it framed by the people path. Yes. That, Your that, associations that, are able to withstand the outside world because any any encounter, any group that you associate with is framed within you. So there's that, that foundation of how you're going to approach that. that. Yes, because, because now we, Dave is talking about someone who has integrated the Eightfold Path, now is part of a group, but they're not. A, a good example, Laura, if I could. Um, Laura gave this wonderful concert um, at a uh, All Saints Church in Princeton, and I think it was Episcopal, Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. and a, a decidedly mm-hmm. Christian program. And so here's you know one of the world's most foremost Buddhists going into this, the house of evil. <laughs> the, the walls didn't the world the walls didn't shudder, you know lightning didn't strike me, and it, and actually the the setting and the uh, the program were just incredible. The churches, and I mean, I've been to that church before. It's a great place to hear hear music, and and I, I it, it was one of the most beautiful and meaningful experiences I've ever had in my life. And it wasn't because, well, I'm a I'm an, I'm associated with Buddhism. I can't listen to Christian music. I would have I would have not allowed myself to have that wonderful evening. And that's that's at the very least. It's still something that is important to me. And, I, and the, 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 those of us that went would say the same thing. I think there's three of us here that would all agree with that. And so the, the, the association or the non-association was not an issue at all. But those that, that are practicing the Dhamma, and I would say even one of the performers, did it within the framework of the Eightfold Path. And so there, there was no opportunity at all for any discord. It was just an incredible evening and a very good example of that. Thanks, David, for that. Lost my place. All right. 
So, Ananda, practice to enter remain in internal self-referential emptiness. No self-referential views. Free of clinging, one can now develop concentration. Free of clinging, one can now develop concentration. So, it doesn't mean that we can't practice jhana meditation and begin our practice when we're still clinging to groups and taking delight in groups. But our practice is going to deepen greatly. Our concentration will deepen greatly when we no longer delight in groups and, and, and are committed to delighting in groups, even this group. Right? But I, don't, I would bet nobody delights in this group and, and is committed to delighting this group. You're just committed to the Dhamma, right? Even though I'm delightful. <laughs> As concentration deepens, one enters the second jhana. I'm sorry, what? I missed the line. When, when withdrawn from the results of ignorant views, well concentrated, one enters and remains in the first jhana, the first level of meditative absorption. As concentration deepens, one enters the second jhana and the third jhana. Finally, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a quality of mind that is pure and calm with no discrimination. With no discrimination. I don't need anything else. I don't need to be anything else. I don't need anybody else to be anything else. With no, discri no discrimination between pleasure and pain. This is how one becomes unified within and well concentrated. Imagine that, unified within, not scattered within. When I refer to someone as now sovereign, this is what I'm referring to. We're good to go all by ourselves. And now we can meaningfully engage with every moment of life because we don't need ourselves or anything else to be any different. We're no longer taking life personal. And what is seen, there is only the seen. And what is heard, there is only what is heard, only what I'm hearing. I don't have to color it. What is cognized is only what is cognized. I don't have to describe what's occurring to myself in any kind of self-referential way. And now I can simply be present for it in a way that I never was before. And so I don't know how much you believe me when I say this, but this moment in my life is the most meaningful moment I've ever had. And I'm, I'm not embellishing this moment at all. Why? Because I've learned how to be present for this moment and not be worried about the past moment and not be concerned at all about the next moment. There's just this. And it's incredible. The Buddha says, this is how one becomes united within and well concentrated. This Dhamma practitioner is settled in internal self-referential emptiness. Their mind does not crave internal self-referential emptiness. Why wouldn't we crave it? Why wouldn't we crave it? Wow. It's already here. It's already here. What's there to crave? There's oh. nothing to crave. Thank you, Mom. Their mind does not crave internal self-referential <laughs> emptiness. Peace and calm is understood as being empty of clinging views and unconditioned mindfulness. Having emptied themselves of self-referential views, they remain mindful of internal and external emptiness. Because I'm subtle in myself, I'm no longer grasping outside of myself for meaning or achievement. Listen to this line, and this is where we're all going if you haven't gotten there yet. Their mind is beyond disturbance. That's jhana, beyond disturbance. There's nothing in the world that can disturb this quality of my mind. And we know it. How do we know it? How do we know it, David? 
<laughs> same same reason because it's happening we know it through our experience not because some crazy bald guy in frenchtown is telling you to do this because that wouldn't last but you do it because you've experienced it you've experienced the benefits of the dharma how by authentic and continuing dharma practice their mind is beyond disturbance free from external or internal disturbance they are brilliant and alert and at peace they now he's describing us as dharma practitioners they take pleasure in the emptiness of self-referential views they have developed skillful concentration skillful concentration then he continues whether walking standing sitting or lying down this dharma practitioner knows that no craving or regret or any unskillful quality will arise excuse me How does that happen, that no unskillful mental quality will arise in a mind that, at least up until a certain point in our lives, unskillful mental qualities kept coming, coming and going, arising and passing away. But we often found our, our, ourselves in a quality of mind that we would say is less than pleasant or less than calm, maybe highly agitated, maybe full of rage, maybe just fear, maybe just distracted. It's only because we haven't yet developed skillful concentration. That's it. So if you're concerned about the quality of your mind, if you come to Dhamma practice because you find yourself agitated or some other less than ideal quality of mind and you want to get to the root of it, it's why it, the, the root of it is you, you have yet to develop skillful concentration. But you all know you can do it because you've all had at least one jhana session, including Adam. You've, you've, you've experienced the most basic part of Dhamma practice. If you can just sit and be quiet for one moment, that's jhana practice. And as you deepen that, you're developing ever more skillful concentration until you get to the point where you've integrated the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path, and you are now an awakened, fully mature human being who's defined by one quality, calm. But as we're learning here, always calm. Whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, this Dharma practitioner knows that no craving or regret or any unskillful quality will arise. Their speech is not base. That's really the first way and most people enter the Dharma through right speech, and we start noticing that our speech might at time be base. It might, it might be coercive. It might be angry. It might, it might be vulgar. But we notice it. And, it. and if we do notice it, we shouldn't beat ourselves up over that. If we happen to find ourselves exaggerating or gossiping about someone, we just recognize it and we stop it. We recognize it, we abandon it. That's all. If we start judging ourselves harshly for having to do that, we're not practicing the Dhamma, are we? We're taking it. We're take, now we're taking our Dhamma practice person. It's enough to just fit your thoughts, words, and deeds within this beautiful framework of the Eightfold Path and know that you're good to go. You don't have to make any apologies to yourself or others. Their speech, is, their speech is not base or vulgar or common or ignoble or harmful or unnecessary. That's an important part of right speech, isn't it? To not engage in idle chatter. Do I spend my days always chit-chatting, always having to engage with someone or something, with Twitter, with Facebook, all the other ones out there? Do I need that in my life? Or am I calm and peaceful when I'm not engaging in idle chatter? In fact, if I'm going to encourage anything at all tonight, I would encourage all of you 
to recognize and abandon a little at a time any idle chatter that you have because that's what you're using for eye making it's what you're using for distraction and it only hurts even when it feels good harmful or unnecessary or does not lead to disenchantment or to dispassion or to cessation or to calm or to direct knowledge or to unbinding or to self-awakening is what i'm engaged with is it leading towards self-awakening sometimes i say this at the the potential that each moment has for every human being, whether you're a Dharma practitioner or not, we're fortunate, is to continue to incline our minds towards further ignorance or to turn our minds away from ignorance and start developing the Dhamma, to turn our minds towards awakening, towards calm. That's the choice each and every one of us has each and every moment of our lives, and we happen to know it. They are unconcerned with kings or robbers or food, or armies, or gossip, or talk of existence or non-existence, or any talk rooted in self-interest. That was basically my Dhamma practice in my life before that. I talked a lot about kings who had more than me, and robbers who might take some from me, and always idle chatter, always talking about this and that, things that had absolutely no consequence with what's occurring in this moment, yet it was a pleasant distraction. And a lot of it happened in my different variations of modern buddhist practice a lot of it was based in idle chatter a lot of it was based in gossip a lot of it was being concerned with with kings and robbers and other things going on in the world rather than developing an internal calm an internal self-assurance and internal emptiness those that do their mind is alert and well concentrated this dharma practitioner develops the right intention to engage in right speech, right? Right intention precedes right speech that is free of craving and clinging and is scrupulous, supportive of the Dharma and leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. It leads to cessation of views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. It leads to common to direct knowledge, knowledge that I have, not somebody else is giving it to me. This isn't based on belief or faith, to direct knowledge, to unbinding from those ignorant views and to self-awakening is what i'm doing in this moment leading to this of course in dharma practice we can say yeah this we know this is leading to self-awakening what about outside here what about off our cushion is our moment by moment life devoted to self-awakening and if it's not what should you do first beat yourself up first simply recognize that what you're engaged in is part of conditioned behavior in thought word and deed and remember what you're doing here, what your reason for living here is to awaken, to gain full human maturity. And if it's not leading to that, simply abandon it and get into the next moment of your life that hopefully is rooted in more self-awakening rather than self-destruction. Their mind is alert and well concentrated. Again, the Buddha continually coming back to that theme of concentration use that as the benchmark am i well concentrated right here and right now and at any point in our dhamma practice it's it's wise for no matter how long we've been practicing no matter what we've developed to ask ourselves am i well concentrated in this moment or am i distracted and if i'm distracted it's because of eye making because i haven't emptied myself of self-referential views and that's okay because now we all know what to do with it deepen our concentration. This, the Buddha continues, this Dharma practitioner, practitioner develops the right intention 
to think skillful thoughts, free of group influence that lead to renunciation, to, to harmlessness, to the cessation of confusion, delusion, and stress. Their mind is alert and well concentrated. Again, there's that quality again. While dwelling in seclusion, their mind well concentrated. Mindfulness of right intention provides the framework for, to recognize and abandon thoughts that are base, vulgar, common, ignoble, hurtful, that do not develop disenchantment, dispassion, release, calm, direct knowledge, and self-awakening and unbinding. So right intention is the intention in this moment to recognize and abandon craving for and clinging to things be different than they are, beginning with me and then extending out. Do I need myself to be different in this moment in any way? Well, I'm taking this moment, I'm taking my, myself personally, I'm taking my thoughts personally. Do I need you to be different than you are in this moment? I've lost my mind again, haven't I? Because you can't be any different than you are, or you would be. People are as they are. Popeye was right, I am what I am. It doesn't mean that people don't change, it doesn't mean that I don't change, but it means in this moment, if I want peace and calm, I'll learn to accept me and you in the world simply as it is. Duke occurs, the first noble truth. This is a deepening understanding of the first noble truth, isn't it? In this moment, Dukkha could occur, or I can be well concentrated and not lose my mind over the things of the world or wanting myself to be different in this world. That's calm, that's peace. And it's doable through the Dharma. The Buddha continues. They maintain the right intention, intention to think thoughts that are noble, and develop renunciation, harmlessness, and liberation. Do, are our thoughts doing that for us? If not, you need a little more Dhamma practice, that's all. They are well concentrated and empty of disturbing thoughts. What a way to live, huh? Ananda, develop refined mindfulness of the sixth sense base, the five physical senses and the sixth sense of our ongoing thinking. And if that thinking is ongoing thinking, or consciousness rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, stress and suffering will continue. If that consciousness is rooted now and framed by the Eightfold Path, awakening will occur. The, let me say that again. Ananda developed refined mindfulness of the sixth sense space to understand how contact with the senses creates disturbance and inflames passion. So of course it does. If I, if I have a quality of mind that is craving for and clinging to, all of my encounters are going to lead to stress because I'll be taking everything personally. Ask yourself, the Buddha says, if there is any disturbance formed by engagement and self-identification with regards to contact at the sixth sense base. If, upon mindful reflection, you find that disturbance has arisen from contact, then you will know, you will know, that you are not empty of craving and clinging. But, if you find that there is no disturbance that arises in your mind from contact like the sixth, the sixth sense base, meaning being in the world, then you will know the craving, the craving for sensory satisfaction has been abandoned. And it might change in the next moment, but at least in this moment, you've abandoned the craving for sensory stimulation, for something to be personal in this moment. The quality of your mind will be well concentrated and empty of disturbing thoughts. The Buddha continues, the five clinging aggregates should be seen, um, 
and Adam, don't worry too much about this, but just so you hear it, the, the five aggregates are physical form, form, our feelings, the perception we have about our feelings and that form, and then the fabrications or the, the, um, the thickening mental constructs that we form based on those perceptions now rooted, rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And the fifth aggregate is consciousness or the way that we think. So don't don't worry too much. Don't think too much about it. But you'll hear more and more about the five clinging aggregates as we go along. And we can talk more about that tomorrow. The Buddha says the five clinging aggregates, the, the what the Buddha describes as the ongoing personal experience of suffering. The five clinging aggregates should be seen as arising and passing away. So why even take the five clinging aggregates too terribly personal? Because now I know they arise and they pass away. All that I have to do is to be present for when they pass away. And then I know what it means to live without the five clinging aggregates. In the next moment, I might take that moment personally. And so the five clinging aggregates come back into play. And now I've left them again. They arise and they pass away. It may seem like the five clinging aggregates are you and all you ever can be, but they are the, your stressful self, and that's all they are. The five clinging aggregates can only contribute to stress, can only contribute to pain, to distraction, to poor relationships, or a poor relationship to, with yourself in relation to the world you live in. And what you want that relationship to be characterized as calm. Form arises and passes away. Feelings arise and pass away. Perceptions arise and pass away. Fabrications arise and pass away. Deluded thinking arises and passes away. Maintaining refined mindfulness, the Buddha says, any, con any conceit that supports the five clinging aggregates is abandoned. Let's say it again. Maintaining refined mindfulness. Refined mindfulness is framed by and integrated with the Eightfold Path. Maintaining refined mindfulness any conceit that supports the five clinging aggregates is abandoned. And this one is mindful that they have emptied themselves of any disturbance formed by ignorance. We're mindful of it. We know we've done it for ourselves and to ourselves. The quality of mind is well concentrated and empty of disturbing thoughts. Ananda, the qualities that are developed through the Dhamma are singular, uh, are singularly useful in developing understanding of reality. Read it again. Ananda, the qualities that are developed through the Dhamma, through the Eightfold Path, are singularly useful in developing an understanding of reality. You could say that's their only usefulness too, isn't it? To understand the reality of what it means to have a human, to have a human life. The Buddha then says, they are noble, those that have done that. They are transcendent and cannot be affected by ignorance. So if we really want to know how to establish ourselves in a world that is prone to dukkha, we learn to not be affected by ignorance, by the dukkha, by the ignorance that present, is present in the world. Many people feel that they can't really take up the Dharma or take it up at all until external conditions or external problems in their lives have been met and somehow resolved. When you're not going to do that until you take to the Dharma and resolve the issues within yourself. I'm going to read it one more time. They are noble, transcendent, and cannot be affected by ignorance. I would say that everybody here that's listening would want that. Is there anybody here that doesn't want to be, or that would like to be affected by ignorance a little bit longer? 
And it's okay to say yes. You might find some value in it. I can see Adam already shaking his head. He knows. <laughs> the Buddha continues. Now, Ananda, what do you think is a proper goal for a disciple? A disciple is simply one who's taken the discipline of the Dhamma. That's what a disciple means. Now, Ananda, what do you think is a proper goal for a disciple, even after a rebuke from their teacher? What do you think? If some of us, one of our Dhamma teachers says, you might want to do it this way, you're, quite, you're not quite getting it. Ananda says, you are our teacher and your Dhamma is our guide. Please explain this statement for our long-term benefit. This is important. Ananda, it is not skillful to follow a teacher simply to hear discourses or dogma. I did that for many, many years. More years than I really, I was kind of trying to add it up, but more years than I really would like to, but it's true. I simply thought if I could just hear something, I hear people teaching and listen to the dogma, dogma without really changing anything except my now associations, clinging associations with a particular group, that somehow that was going to be good to go. And all the disturbances, all the things that I thought were bad or wrong or lacking in me was somehow going to be resolved by simply my, by my dragging my behind here and there and really doing nothing that actually changed my mind. And I didn't do anything. I, I did a lot of things that my associate, the people I was associating with did. Why? Because they were doing it, thinking that that was salvation, that somehow it was going to fix this broken self that was rooted in self-loathing. Even though there was an underlying, excuse me, an underlying awareness that I don't think this is going to work. I, I never felt like I was going anywhere. But again, because of my association, some of them were even romantic at times, but they were always um, friendly and familial with a group. That's what kept me going. It wasn't the benefit that I was getting out of it. It was the distraction. It was a belief that I was doing what everybody else was doing, so it must be right. The Buddha says, you have done this for a long time and have understood them according to your views. But talk on modesty, contentment, seclusion, non-entanglement, persistence, wisdom, virtue, and concentration. Talk that is scrupulous, conducive, conducive to refine mindfulness. That develops directly dispassion, disenchantment, cessation, calm and binding, and the direct knowledge and vision of release is skillful to attend to and hold in mind what leads to the Dhamma. That's what we should be holding in mind. The Buddha then says, this being, this being the case, failure to empty oneself of clinging to ignorant views will lead to the long-term suffering for a teacher or a student or anyone engaged with the Dhamma. Now, I'm going to talk about something um, and I don't want you to take reference to any, you might take reference to somebody that I know that you know. And I'm only using them as an example, not in any way to gossip about them, and I'm not going to mention their names. Um, and I've had a few people like this that were very, very good friends. One was particularly a romantic friend that because of their associations with other groups, even though they tried this practice, it became something that took too much away from their other practices. And so they abandoned this practice. And I have no problem with the, with both of these people. They, they're living their life exactly as they want to and exactly as they should. I'm not saying they should live their life differently. What I am saying is if they continue with Dhamma practice, they might, life might be different. 
but they couldn't develop the Dhamma and also develop these other practices is, is all that I'm saying. There's a few people here that have other practices that some people might think are not complementary of the Dhamma, but in their minds, they're able to keep them separate and see them as separate practices. And that works very well. You know, it works very well for them. They're able to do that, but not everybody's able to do that. So let me just go back to this, just to put this back in context. This being the case, failure to empty oneself of clinging to ignorant views will lead to the long-term suffering for a teacher or a student or anyone engaged with the Dhamma. How does this occur? For a teacher, even dwelling in seclusion, becomes enamored by offerings of trinkets or praise and falls into the three defilements. Meaning, I'm going to be a teacher of the Dhamma, but it better pay off royally. I better get some notoriety and fame. I better get a lot of money out of this, too. And if we're going into it with that intention, and I see that intention a lot out in the world, all I'm doing is creating great suffering for myself. Because now my Dhamma practice, and I could be a, and I know many brilliant teachers, Buddhist teachers, that fell into this. Who notices them? How much, what's coming in? And they even became enamored with the shows of that, with making people know how successful they are by the clothes they wore and the cars they drove and the buildings they inhabited. They've lost their mind to their own practice, haven't you? And it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that you, that you deny yourself as a Dhamma teacher. What it does mean is you don't identify with it. As a teacher, you don't become enamored by being a teacher. You're just a teacher. We have, how many, I think we have seven or eight Dhamma teachers. And we're all on the same page. None of us are, I mean, they might, you might see me as the head Dhamma teacher and having somebody special, but I am. I'm not, I'm not teaching a different Dhamma than our other Dhamma teachers are. And you've all experienced that. The Dhamma is the same, isn't it? Because it's the same in everybody. The three defilements, the three, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. So I teach the Dharma because it's really what I want to do right now. And it's what makes this moment so meaningful to me. It's not because of the millions I make or the adoration I get all over the world. You know, said, but that would be nice. But no, I mean, it really is. I, I would, the only reason I, I am teaching the Dharma is because you're all here to hear it. You know, I had a nice kind of Dhamma practice long before I started teaching, but it was nothing like this. And I wouldn't give this up for anything. I'd continue if I had to, if you all decided you wanted a different practice. But my practice is inspired and invigorated by your practice. And everybody here at our Sangha would say the same thing. It's not just because I'm here or certain people are here. It's because we're all here practicing this one thing. Then the Buddha says there is also the case of a student lacking understanding, imitates the teacher and has failed to empty themselves of clinging to ignorant views and becomes enamored with, with trinkets or praise and falls to the three defilements. We had a situation that came to a head, I think now about two years, where a member of our Sangha was becoming, was making it more of an issue that they wanted to direct the, what we were talking about and how we approach the Dhamma, et cetera, et cetera. And that's an example. I think those of us that were here at the time, um, we all became rather unsettled with that as it developed. And we, we 
had a resolution that has worked and kept us well-focused, but it, it can arise even in a well-focused Dharma practice like ours. They have failed to empty themselves of who... Yes, Tom. Sorry, John. Just very quickly, I'm going to have to jump off. I'm afraid I've got a, the work day is starting, and I. Uh, but it was a really great class. I, I love this sutta. Um, so thanks for the teaching. Thank you for joining us, Tom. Uh, and I'll have it posted uh, later on tonight. Yeah, I'll, li I'll so listen can, to the rest yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, thank Great. you. Thank you, Tom. Becomes enamored with trinkets or praise and falls into the three defilements. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. So the Buddha, um, as was common in his day, and maybe somewhat to, in this today, uh, if you had a reputation as a great spiritual teacher, even though the Buddha wasn't teaching spiritual things, all the people in power wanted you to be part of their kingdom, etc. Um, and so the Buddha could have easily become very, very wealthy very, very quickly. Or he could have given up the Dhamma and gone back to his father's kingdom. But he never did that. He always lived incredibly simply, even when he was living within a kingdom. Some people would invite him in to stay in the kingdom or build uh, lavish monasteries for the Buddha and his original Sangha. They did go into those places, but they lived very simply in those places. And they always went out every day. For The, the Buddha did this for 45 years. He, he got up, meditated, put on his robes, his three robes, if he needed three, if it was cold out, and walked into town with a bowl in his hand, said, begging for his food. And then he went back. And he lived the most incredible life, and I think any human being ever lived, based on that incredible simplicity that he established for himself. And I think a lot of us are developing that, that maybe not that austere simplicity, but our lives have gotten simpler simply because of Dharma practice. And I, I can see, those of you that I can see shaking their head are agreeing with that. Then there is a case where one engages with the Dharma and fails to empty themselves from clinging views. A Tathagata has arisen in the world, a worthy and rightly self-awakening, awakened one. Dwelling in seclusion, he avoids becoming enamored by offerings of trinkets or praise and does not fall into the three defilements. His mind is calm and empty of disturbance. A student of the Tathagata, dwelling in seclusion, becomes enamored by offerings or trinkets or praise and falls into the three defilements and now lives in one view. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking and suffering. So he's saying, even when there's an awakened one in the world, other human beings will continue their ignorance. In this regard, Ananda, a Dhamma practitioner who fails to empty themselves of the defilements can only continue confusion, deluded thinking and disappointment. So even with an awakened human being in the world, others won't naturally awaken, will they? And they don't. But this also... Um, throws a lot of, of uh, water on the fire of something that I was always taught in modern Buddhism, that awakening is one of the most common things that happen in the world. And millions and millions of Buddhas have appeared in human history before Siddhartha Gautama, and an endless number will uh, uh, somehow are established in the future that somehow we should connect. The Buddha never saw himself that way, and he never saw himself as a savior. In fact, he tell, teaches us right here, don't look for salvation, because there's no salvation here. There's only understanding. But understanding is the miracle of human life, understanding what it means to be a human being. The Buddha says, do not engage with a teacher 
or the Dhamma in opposition. Engage with a teacher and a Dhamma with friendliness. That alone will be for your long-term well-being and happiness. And that really is the crux of the matter that we addressed a couple of years ago. The friendliness had gone out of that relationship. And the teacher, or what we're doing here, was never seen as the friend. And, and you should all see me as your friend. And you should see our other teachers as your friend. I hope you do. Because I see all of you as my friends in the Dhamma. And we had a meeting before. Some of you weren't here, but some of you were very helpful because you were my friends. And something that I have to think about. Really, because you're my friends. Thank you. But thank you all for being my friend, for being a part of my sangha. And thank you for letting me be a part of your sangha. And how do students engage in opposition with a teacher? When the teacher teaches the, the Dharma with understanding and concern for the student's well-being, but the students do not listen or apply themselves to understanding, they stray from the Dhamma. This is how students oppose the teacher. So the teacher is putting in his time. If you're here, you're putting in your time. Don't disagree with the, with the teacher. If you think what is here is valuable, practice the Dhamma. In other words, don't always be engaged in a, um, an intellectual exercise of trying to find um, situations where this might apply, because you always can develop the, jhana, develop the Dhamma rooted in jhana. And then you'll see how it applies in every situation. And how do students engage with a teacher in the Dhamma in friendliness? When the teacher teaches the Dhamma with understanding and concern for the student's well-being, I'm going to ask the question. I know the answer. Do you people feel that I teach with all your with your well-being in, in mind? Does anybody not? It's okay if you think if you think I, that I don't have your well-being in mind. I do, but it's only because I have my own well-being in mind. I'm teaching the Dhamma right now for my well-being. And it just so happens that it works for all of us, isn't it? When the teacher teaches a Dhamma with understanding and concern for the student's well-being and the students listen and apply themselves to understanding, they do not stray from the teacher or the Dhamma. This is how students engage with the teacher in friendliness and not in opposition. Ananda engaged. Now, this the Buddha is telling his his cousin, who's been practicing with him for many years now, and he says, Ananda, engage with me in the Dhamma in friendliness. This will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. He, then the Buddha says, I love these lines. I will not hover over you, but I will remind you again and again of the Dhamma. Is that how you would characterize my teaching? I don't hover over you. Damn it. Thank you. And I think you'll see that this is reflected here in our Sangha, in our teaching. What is not essential will be gone, and what is essential will, will remain. Would you agree that we only teach what is essential? We don't bring a lot of stuff into this? I will not hover over you, but I will remind you again and again of the Dhamma. What is not essential will be gone, and what is essential will remain. This is what the Buddha said, and Ananda, Ananda was delighted in the Buddha's words, as we all are. Thank you for Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, 
and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.